of the doctrine of God as we've been going over the past few or the past session we looked at the doctrine of scripture and we're thinking about these core things that we believe as Christians <clears throat> and so we come to this question tonight of who is God um, because every religion in the world um Every religion in the world, it tries to answer this question in some form or another and produces very, very different answers. If you did a street survey and asked different people in the street, you know, who is God? Then you would get as many different answers as you asked people. And as we discussed last time, if we really want to understand who God is, then we've got to start with how God reveals himself to us in scripture. And that's where I want to begin tonight. We're going to think about how God has revealed himself. And we're going to begin by thinking, we could have begun in many different places. We could have begun with Genesis 1 and looked at how God reveals himself as the creator. I'm not going to begin there. I'm going to begin in Genesis uh, Genesis 3, a critical event which happened about three and a half thousand years ago with a man named Moses. And you've got a painting of him there at the burning bush. And we're going to read about him in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. No, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and if you've got your own translation, that's absolutely fine, but I've got it on the screen behind me, which hopefully is readable. And the word of God comes to us and says these words. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was in fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This then is one of the pivotal moments in the history of God's dealing with humanity. The pivotal, one of the pivotal moments in redemptive history because God comes here in condescending grace 
to a shepherd on Mount Sinai and reveals himself by name, reveals himself as the God who cares deeply for his people so much that he listens to them. And without such a revelation, we might never know that God is actually a God who cares. After all, there's many people and they believe that there is a divine being of some sort. They'll talk about a God who set everything in motion. They'll talk about how that there must be some greater life force in the universe. There must be something which transcends the mere matter of the universe. But to believe that there is a God who actually deeply cares about us requires us to hear God telling us that requires God to actually reveal himself. And that's what God does here with Moses. And there's various different aspects of God that are actually revealed here. And I'm going to briefly mention some of them and come back to some of them later. But these are things that will help us to get thinking about who is the God that we meet in Scripture. Who is the God who has revealed himself to us? And we discover, first of all, that God, he doesn't appear in bodily form. This is the God who appears in fire to Moses. Um, and this, this then means that he's not like the God of many other religions, the gods of the Greeks or the Romans, for example, who are basically glorified human beings with bodies and, and characteristics like humans. No, God is not like that. And as Moses meets with God, God reveals to him that he is such a transcendent and holy God that he has to remove his sandals from his feet because Moses isn't worthy to be there. And so Moses is even afraid to look at this God who has appeared to him. And so he covers his face. And yet, even though he is a God who is defined by how different he is from us, transcendent and glorious, yet we discover that he is a God who has an intimate care for his people. And he has appeared to Moses precisely because he has heard the cries of his people. And he has come because he wants to do something about it. And he is going to rescue them. But we also discover here that God is the God who names himself. Because the Hebrews... The people that Moses was going to go to and tell them that God had sent him to lead them out of Egypt, they had been surrounded for hundreds of years by the gods of the Egyptians and all these different gods with their different characteristics. And they were going to say to Moses, listen, Moses, who is this God who has sent you to us to set us free? And Moses is told to go to them and say that this God is called I Am. Of course, he, he is told that he's going to tell the Israelites that he's the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's going to tell them more specifically that this God is called I Am. And as we see in the text later down, uh, we read that he is, called, um, he is called Yahweh. He is called the Lord, um, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, when you see that in your Bible, it's, it's normally substituted for the title Lord. But behind that name, the, the Hebrew name is Yahweh, and traditionally that's transliterated as Jehovah. But that name, Yahweh, simply means he is. So it's just a different verbal form of the name that he reveals himself as I am. And so Moses goes to the people and they say, who is, who is this God who has sent you? And Moses says, I am has sent, has sent me. He is has sent me to you. 
And the whole point of this is that he's completely unlike any of the gods of the nations, because all the gods of the nations, they're not self-defining. They're, they're all you know, products of people's imaginations, and they're all connected to all different kinds of other forces and gods. But this is the transcendent, the self-existent God who doesn't depend on anyone or anything. And if you ask him who he is, the answer simply is, I am who I am. He's not defined by anything else. And so he says, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so as, as we go on in the book of Exodus, we discover that Moses gets to know more about this God that he encountered in Mount Sinai. And his longing to know this God grew deeper and deeper until one day he eventually plucks up the courage to say to God, that he wants to see God's glory. And to be clear, he doesn't say that he wants to see God because he knows that God isn't seeable. You can't just see God. He's not seeable in that sense. But he has to see the glory of God. He wants to see the splendor of God shining out so that he would catch a glimpse of just how wonderful God is. And then we come to this in Exodus chapter 33. And, and again, this is another passage which is very foundational. I want to reflect on some of the aspects of God's character that are revealed here. Uh, and so um, we read uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand in a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord then said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write in them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere in the mountain, not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. And worship is indeed the appropriate response to this God that we encounter, that Moses encountered. This is an awesome God. So great is he, so great is his splendor that, that God says to him, no one can actually see my face and live. No one can see me and live. So any sight of God then is partial, is limited by our own finiteness, our own creatureliness. And, and as Moses experienced the presence of God and he hears God speaking and God speaks his name, 
He is, I am. He is Yahweh. And then he declares his character. He says that he's a God of compassion and grace. And as well as that, he's the God of justice. He's the God who punishes sin and iniquity. And this is interesting because sometimes people get the idea that the God of the Old Testament is a nasty, vindictive, cruel sort of God who's constantly lashing out at people. And here when you've got this foundational revelation of who God is in the Old Testament, the first and foremost thing that God says is that he is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And we see then that the character that's revealed to us is first and foremost a God who is astoundingly good, astoundingly lovely. And yet he's also a God of justice, a God of righteousness and truth. And there is no tension between these. He's a God of perfect love and perfect justice. And this is a very interesting aspect of God that we're going to come back to. Now, as we reflect on the character of God that we meet here in Scripture, these encounters that God had with Moses, the fundamental impression that we get is that this is a God who really transcends all of our categories and understandings. This is a God who, who cannot be seen by human beings. The God who is simply there, who is self-existent, who calls himself I am. And yet there's something quite unusual about this, these passages, because as we look at these uh, this last passage in particular, Exodus 33 and 34, we read that, that God, he takes Moses, puts him in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his hand, and goes past, and Moses sees his back. And this is very interesting, because the Bible obviously is using this imagery of God as an embodied being. God with his hands, God with his back, God with his face. And some people read these passages and they really get the wrong end of the stick. They imagine that God is actually, therefore, just a, a, a great embodied being. He, he's got a body like everybody else. But that would not fit with what we discover elsewhere in Scripture. And obviously even what we discover here in Scripture is that God is so glorious he cannot be seen. So Moses doesn't even see God. Moses sees God's glory, is the shining of, of how great he is, not the actual God's essence. And elsewhere in scripture you read, of course, um, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that no one has ever seen God or can see God. Uh, and the Lord Jesus, he says in John 4.24, that God is spirit. In other words, he is not a physical being and he cannot be seen. And the reason why I make this point is that some people do actually get this wrong. Um, Mormons, for example, believe that God the Father is an embodied being. Uh, and so we need to make the point that actually God isn't an embodied being. Yet, nevertheless, we've got passages in Scripture like this that talk about God's hands and talk about God's back and God's face. And we've got to deal with this question, well, if this is who God is, then how are we supposed to understand this? And the first point that we have to understand about the way the Bible talks about God is that the Bible regularly uses analogical talk about God. Now, that sounds very complicated. It just means that the Bible describes God's God in ways that are similar to us so that we would understand what God is like. But we are not supposed to make a kind of one-to-one -one transfer between the way that God describes himself like us and what God is actually, uh, actually like in his being. I'll give you an example. Take, take God's hands, for example. 
God regularly portrays himself in the Bible as having hands. And, and when we look at various passages of scriptures and look at what those hands are doing, those hands are caring for us. Those hands hold us. And so the Bible portrays God as having hands, not so that we would imagine that he's a giant embodied being, but so that we would see that God is a God who, who cares for us intimately. So we're not supposed to, to make a direct transfer between you know, our language about God and what God is actually like, because God is far beyond anything that we could actually understand. Same with God's fatherhood, for example. The Bible talks about God as father, um, and the Lord Jesus tells us to pray, our father. And yet we've got to be very careful about that kind of language, because obviously it means that in some sense, some analogy to, to us, God is fatherly. But to make a direct transfer and say that God is father in every sense that humans are fathers is to make a category mistake. That God isn't like that. That God far exceeds all of our categories. But nevertheless, there is some similarity between the way fathers are fathers on earth and the way God is father. And the way then that the Bible speaks to us about God has to be understood as analogical because he is so much greater than us. Um, uh, some people have said that that God, to accommodate himself to our understanding, he speaks to us the way that we speak to little children, the way that we speak to babies. We've got to break things down in really simple talk and, and lisp to babies uh, so that they would understand the way that we're communicating to them. And the same way God condescends to us. And if he were to, to suddenly reveal everything that he was to us, our minds couldn't contain it. So God has to present himself in ways that we can actually digest and make sense of. And so this is, the, this is why then the Bible speaks to us in these ways. But God's condescension to us is not just limited to the fact that he speaks to us in words that we can understand, but he comes to us in a person that we can understand. God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's fundamentally in God's active condescension in the person of his son, coming in human flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, that we encounter who God is. Now, I'm going to come back to that in another session to think about what it means for God to enter into the world in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'll come back to that. But for now, it's enough to know that we cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ. We cannot know who God is unless we know Jesus Christ. And that's why the Lord Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so John's gospel is filled with this idea that the Lord Jesus is the one who reveals God. And so he writes in 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but that one and only Son who is himself God, who is in the bosom of the Father, the closest relationship of the Father, he is the one who has made him known. And so if we're ever going to know God, then we need to know Jesus Christ. But as we meet God as revealed in Jesus Christ, we discover something about God's which, which is fresh, uh, which comes to us in greater clarity in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ than in previous eras of God's redemptive history. And so uh, 
a classic example is at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1.10, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And in this remarkable incident, we discover who God is in a very interesting way. We discover that the Father speaks from heaven and declares that this is his son whom he loves. The spirit descends in the form of a dove and rests on Jesus. And the son, the one who's appointed by the father, who's in closest relationship with the father, comes out of the water and is declared to be the one who's been sent by God, the one who's loved by God. And the Bible never uses this expression. It never uses the expression trinity. But as the early Christians reflected in passages like this, they came to the conclusion that there's no other way of talking about God. How do you talk about this, this three-in-oneness of God, that these three persons form one divine being who is God? And so they, they use this terminology of Trinity, which I'm going to come back to next session, to understand the God that is revealed to us in scripture. And again, this reinforces the point. We can never understand who God is unless God reveals himself. And this is the kind of thing that you don't just dream up because you've got your own little idea of God. This is the kind of thing that actually goes beyond what any human being would dream up because it it doesn't fit with what our natural preconceptions might be. And so it becomes clear that as we think about God, as we think about who God is, there are aspects of God that are like us and there are aspects of God that are completely unlike us. And so we can refer to these different aspects of God's being as God's communicable attributes, those that can be shared with us, and God's incommunicable attributes, those that cannot be shared with us at all. And so there's aspects of God's being that cannot be shared, and that we've mentioned as Trinity, we've mentioned the fact that that he is the self-existent God. And these these are incommunicable. They cannot be shared with us. On the other hand, there are those that can be shared with us. So the Bible tells us to be holy uh, because God is holy. The Bible tells us that God is love and therefore that we ought to love our brothers and sisters. And so there are aspects of God that we are called upon to actually imitate. Now, I'm not going to have time to go through all of these tonight. So I'm going to come back to God's Trinity and God's communicable attributes next session. But I'm just going to quickly go through God's incommunicable attributes. And these are incommunicable because God doesn't say to us, you know, be Trinity because I am Trinity. He doesn't say, you know, be omniscient because I am omniscient. These are things that make God who he is and mark mark him out as being very different from us. And the first then of God's incommunicable attributes that we've already been thinking about a little bit is God's independence. Uh, This is the way that God is not like us. And the technical term for this is God's aseity. It comes from a Latin expression, two two little words. Ase just means from himself. And this is wrapped up in the idea of God who reveals himself as I am or he is. That he doesn't depend upon anything else for his existence. He simply is. And this puts pay to the old atheist question of, you know, where did God come from that they like to throw out quite often? Because if you understand that who God is by his very nature is the self-existent one who doesn't depend on anything else, then asking where he came from is asking why squares aren't more circular. It's just 
doesn't make any sense. A square is a square just because it's a square. And so God is self-existent. He doesn't have a beginning simply because he is God. That's, that's the very definition. And this is how God then defines himself as the great I am. Um, we see this being brought out in scripture and practical application. Psalm 50, God rebukes his people because they thought that they could buy him off. Uh, people thought that they could bring along their sacrifices and God would love, you know, this great, you know, expensive bull that had been sacrificed in the altar. And God comes along and says, hang on a second, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle in a thousand hills. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. In other words, God does not depend on us. He doesn't need anything from us. And so the practical application of this is that we can never bribe God. We can never say to God, oh, well, you know, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you, because God simply does not need us. And that's not supposed to discourage us. It's supposed to encourage us, because we in ourselves, we, we lack so much. We are not self-sufficient. We need a God who is. We need a God who comes to us and is an endless source of goodness, an endless source of power and strength for us, who can freely supply us what we need rather than him depending on us and all our weakness and frailty. But God's not only... um, the God who is independent, the God who doesn't need us, but God is also the one who is unchangeable. We can refer to this as God's immutability. And there's various passages which clearly explain that God does not change. Um, Numbers twenty three nineteen is a wonderful passage where Balaam, he is blessing the people of God. And Balak, he wants, he wants God to change his mind. He wants God to say, actually, you know, I'm going to curse the Israelites. And Balaam comes off with this startling declaration that God is not a human, that he should lie. He's not a human being, that he should change his mind. He cannot change. And so James, he, he makes this declaration in, in chapter 117 when he describes God as the father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow due to turning. So it's, he never changes. He is constantly the same. And this should be of great comfort to us because, you know, we're never going to wake up today where God is suddenly in a bad mood. Or another day where suddenly God is in cheerier mood and he's going to be nicer to us that day because you know he's had a good day. God, God is this constant, unchangeable source of goodness which can never diminish because it is so full. God is everything that he could possibly be. But it's not only in his moral character um, and goodness that doesn't change, but his changelessness means that he doesn't experience emotional fluctuation. He doesn't experience emotional states the way we do. Um, because in our lives, if something bad happens to us, then it makes us angry, it makes us sad. And if something good happens to us, then we suddenly cheer up and we're like, ah, the world's a better place. But with God, God's changelessness means that there's nothing that can happen that can actually change God from being happier to sadder because God is the changeless 
perfectly joyful God. And so Christians have regularly referred to this as God's impassibility. Um, the idea that God cannot suffer, that God cannot experience passions, emotions in the way that we do. But, but many Christians have then wondered, well, what does it mean then when it says that God experiences anger, that God experiences sadness or joy? Because the Bible clearly says that God does experience these things. And we've got to think, well, what do we do with that? But here again, it helps us to think about the, the fact that all of our talk about God is analogy. It's analogous to our experience. How else are we supposed to understand God's reaction to evil in the world? without thinking about the way that we get angry at evil and injustice? How else are we supposed to understand God's, God's love and God's joy without understanding the, the experience that we feel? And so God enables us, because we're created in the image of God, to, to have some kind of understanding of what, it, what it's like for him, but yet God's experience of these things is entirely different from the way we experience these things. And so we've got to be careful then when we think about the, the way God experiences joy or anger or grief. Because it's not like suddenly something bad happens in the world and suddenly a, a, a God flips and he's like, oh, I'm so angry about this that I'm going to do something about it. Or that you know, something good happens in the world and God suddenly changes from being sad to, to happy. Because God has this settled, immovable uh, joy in all that is good and a settled, immovable opposition and hatred of all that is evil, that can never diminish, that can never change. And so in that sense, God is simply unchangeable. Um, and so in our experience, obviously we do experience different aspects of God. When we go from darkness to light, when we're converted, we go from experiencing God's judgment to experiencing God's love and mercy. But it's not that God has changed, it's that we have changed. We have experienced something new about God because we ourselves have been changed by God. And more could be said here, uh, and some Christians have even rejected the idea of God's impassibility and said, well, you know, look at the Bible. The Bible clearly speaks about God's emotions. But I think you've got to be very careful here because it doesn't mean that God experiences emotions the way we do. And also, if you say that God does, then you've got the question then, does this then mean that God is changeable? And so when you start to tamper with this idea that God is somehow changeable, then you start to go down quite um, problematic paths. But the other aspect of God's changelessness, his immutability, um, that, that is really interesting, is the fact that um, God doesn't exist within time itself. Uh, because for us, the way that we experience time is that we experience one event after another, and so one event can actually cause us to be sad, and another event can cause us to be happy. But God exists outside of time itself we refer to God as eternal he's the God of eternity and that means that he, he experiences everything the past the present and the future which all occur sequentially for us all is one for God and this then means that that there is nothing that doesn't exist for God. Psalm 90 says that from everlasting to everlasting he is God and that a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. And that doesn't mean that, you know, time just happens to go really quickly for God. 
Again, it's using analogous languages, helping us to understand that, that God does not experience time in the same way that we do. And this means then that God knows the future the same way as he knows the present, the same way as he knows the past. And he knows everything about our lives. He knows how they're going to wind up. He knows how the story of this universe is going to wind up because everything is present to him. And so there's no secrets. There's nothing that's going to surprise him. And so he will have the victory in the end because he knows the end from the beginning. He's the eternal God who reigns over time itself and exists outside of it. But just as he exists outside of time, so also he exists outside of space. He is the God who rules over all that exists <coughs> in this world. And he cannot be constrained by space. And we can't pin him down and say, you know, he, he's contained in any one space where we can look at him or manipulate him. And we refer to this as God's omnipresence. He is all-present. And as Solomon dedicated the temple long ago, he built this beautiful building where God would be. And, and even though on the one hand he says that God is going to come and take up his residence there, on the other hand he says in 1 Kings 8.27, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, so all of the creation cannot continue. How much less this temple that I have built and so Solomon's very aware that God's presence, it extends beyond the bounds of this universe. It is so vast, it is immense, and God is omnipresent. And yet God fills this universe in such a way that none of us can actually escape from God's presence. And so David, he writes about this in Psalm 139 and says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Nevertheless, despite the fact that God is everywhere and that we cannot be away from God, the Bible also speaks about God being in particular places at particular times. Just as he was in the temple, so also there's particular times when he is with us. Uh, oh, someone mentioned in prayer that God is with us in, in our daily lives. God talks about taking up residence within us. And we rejoice in Lord's Day morning, don't we, that the Lord Jesus says where two or three are gathered together in my name there I am in the midst of them. And we rejoice about the fact then that the Lord Jesus Christ is especially with us. But what, what does that mean if God is everywhere? What does it mean if God is everywhere in the universe for us to say that God is here? That the Lord Jesus Christ presences himself with us by his spirit. And again, we need to think in terms of analogous language. What does it mean for a person to be present? Um... Sometimes, if I'm sitting at home, I'm on my phone, and I become very aware of the fact that I'm not present with my family. I'm not paying attention. I'm, I'm, I might be physically there, but I'm not paying attention. And so for us, the idea of presence communicates the idea that you're actually paying attention to people, that you're actually enjoying being there with them. And this then is, is something of the idea then that God wants to communicate to us when he says that he's going to be in particular places. He's wanting to draw attention to the fact that, that yes, he's everywhere, but there's particular places where he chooses to pay attention to uh, and chooses to make his blessing known in, in a special way. And so it's not that, that he's, he's not everywhere, but that he chooses to make his presence manifest in very particular ways in, in blessing 
And so it, it helps us then to think in terms of this analogous language as we think about what it means for God to be present in particular places at particular times. And so the God who is everywhere yet nevertheless chooses to presence himself with us very particularly. Now the last attribute I'm going to focus on, and I could have focused on many more, but you'll be thankful that I'm going to wind up. Um, the last attribute I'm going to think about is God's simplicity. And first of all, when people hear this, they're like, hmm, God is simple. What do you mean by that? Uh, because is God not complex? Is God not beyond our understanding? But the idea of simplicity is the idea of something that is not composed of different parts. A complex machine is one that has lots of different moving parts in it. And it's difficult to understand as a result of that. But God, God is one pure undivided being who cannot be split up into different parts because if you could split God up into different parts then there'd be aspects of God that would be separate from one another and there would be some aspects that you particularly like and some aspects you maybe don't like so much and potentially then you've got aspects of God that might be working against each other because God would exist in different segments. And then you're back to the old question, well, what part of God is like the real essence of God? And so you start to divide God up and that is dangerous territory. And so when the Bible speaks about God, it speaks about God in terms of his whole undivided being. And so, for example, John, 1 John 4, it says that God is love. It doesn't say that God has love, that's true. And it doesn't say that God has parts of him that are love. The Bible says that God is love. And that then means that there is no part of God that is not love. And the same is true for all of his attributes. God is every single one of his attributes. And if that is difficult to get your head around, then, then you can just ponder that because... It is a very important thought. That means that, that there is no part of God, for example, God's justice, that is not loving justice, that exists in perfect harmony together. There, there's no part of God's anger against sin that is not loving anger against sin. That God's, God's character is so perfectly one that there is no tension within God. With us, there's tension. We feel the tension, you know, you know. on the one hand, I, I really like that person, but on the other hand, there's something about them I don't like, and we feel tension within us. And God doesn't feel a tension like that. God is one pure, undivided being of love and goodness. And this is important because when we start to think about God's attributes in isolation from one another, then we start to play them off against each other. And we cannot do that because God is simple. God cannot be divided. This is also really important when we're thinking about the Trinity. And I'm going to come back to the Trinity next session, like I said. But sometimes when people think about the Trinity, they're like, okay, there's three parts to God. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if, as we've said, that God is simple, God is one undivided being, then you can't be like, oh, you know, there's a third, that's, that's the Son, and there's a third, that's the Father, and there's the third, that's the Holy Spirit. It's not like that. Rather, God is Trinity and is simply Trinity, 
There are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but their essence, power, glory, divinity, cannot be divided up. And I'll come back to that next time and talk about it. And I also want to emphasize that rather than being a conundrum for us to puzzle over uh, and to, to be embarrassed about as Christians, the Trinity is actually something for us to rejoice over. That actually this is the foundation of our salvation, that we're drawn into fellowship with the triune God. But I just wanted to make that connection between the fact that God is simple, and because he is simple, then the Trinity does not mean that there are three gods or three parts to God. It means that there are three distinct persons to God and we'll think next time about what that means so what can we say as we think about this God that we've reflected upon well firstly we have to stand in awe of who God is as he reveals himself to us because sometimes people like to say to say things like you know I like to think about God as and then insert some really romantic notion uh, that really makes them happy and that's not how God wants us to approach him because God doesn't give us the option of you know God is fill in the blank for yourself. God is wonderful and glorious and good, but he defines himself. And so it's no accident then that when he reveals his name, he reveals himself as he is, I am. And so he defines who he is. He is the self-existent God. But the God that we see revealed to us in redemptive history and in scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ is not there for a God that we should be scared of. Because, because as much as we might like to fill in our own definition of what God's like, it's always going to be inferior to who God really is. Because God is the supreme source of pure delight he is everything that we could need he is everything that is good and lovely and he is the counterpart to our weakness and frailty as human beings so that when we come to him in our insufficiency and unworthiness we discover that he is everything that we could ever need and we meet him then as the independent God, the self-sufficient God, who, who doesn't come to us needy, begging for us to do something, because he is there and calls us to open your mouths and I'll fill it. He is the God who is there to bless us with everything that he can do for us. We meet him then in scripture as the God who, who will never ever change the God who will never be apart from us never leave us or forsake us the God who knows the entirety of our lives because they're present to him and the God who is so good that he knows no mixture no segmentation he is pure goodness and in short the God that we we see revealed through scripture and in person of Jesus Christ is the God that we need he is the one that we need. And so as we meet him in scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ, we say, like uh, Isaiah records in Isaiah 25, 9, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is Yahweh. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, who has revealed yourself to us in condescending grace, we thank you that you have called us into fellowship with yourself 